Welcome, glad that you are here. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 5, as we just read. We'll be in verses 5 through 8. As you turn there, I want to let you know this will be my last time with you for a few weeks. Uh, Not because I'll be in the hospital or getting fired or something like that, but uh, the elders have uh, granted me a sabbatical, and uh, so I will be gone for uh, the next five weeks. Uh, Leaving tomorrow, a buddy let me borrow a uh, camper, and so my family and I are going to uh, load that up, and we're leaving tomorrow, and we're going to go to Carlsbad Caverns, and then Alamogordo for the White Sands, and then up in Santa Fe, and then Utah, and Idaho, and Wyoming, and we had a whole thing planned at Yellowstone, and some of you know the Lord decided to flood Yellowstone, and so we can't uh, get into there, but then we'll go to uh, the Grand Tetons and uh, Glacier National Park, and so uh, I am super excited. This was this has been on my bucket list, just kind of this idea of getting off the grid for a long time. My wife has a different bucket, and so it's I love camping, and she loves me, so she's doing it. Uh, but uh, I'm excited. I'm also a little bit nervous. I've never really done anything like this before. I grew up with both of my grandparents had motorhomes. And so I would travel with them, but I was 12, so I didn't have to do anything. And, uh, and so now I actually have to be the one who is dumping black water and gray water and all those kinds of things. And so I'm a little bit nervous. It's a sink or swim sort of thing. And unfortunately, I didn't really wade in, right? I didn't uh, go and do a little weekend jaunt and see how that goes. Uh, I jumped right into the uh, the deep end uh, by deciding I'm going to hook up to a camper and I'm going to drive 4,000 miles over the span of a month. I literally will be back, I leave tomorrow and I will be back on July 27th. At least uh, gas is relatively inexpensive. <laughs> and, uh, and our country is experiencing unprecedented unity and harmony. No riots or protests in light of Supreme Court decisions. Uh, by the way, we'll, we'll be praying about that uh, at the end of the service. And so if you're wondering uh, why we haven't mentioned it, I just did. And uh, we'll pray about it uh, in a little bit. But um, for some of you, this my plan for my sabbatical uh, sounds really fun. You'd love to do something like that. For others, it's like a literal nightmare that you once uh, had. This will be my first sabbatical. Uh, here at uh, Parkway, my first time to get away for more than a couple of weeks. I know that most people don't get the luxury, maybe in an entire lifetime of working, of having a five-week vacation, so I'm really grateful for that. Uh, I don't take that for granted. Uh, And so what's the purpose of that? What's the kind of the elder's vision? What's the, the idea of a sabbatical? The purpose is to have time to rest and to reorient to kind of be uh, refueled and to re- be, be replenished, to have kind of the, uh, the oil of my heart changed, uh, if you will, because over time, ministry builds up a degree of residue. So that's kind of the general idea of a vacation. Hopefully, all of you occasionally take some sort of time off in order to Sabbath, to rest. We're no longer under the Mosaic prescription of the Sabbath, but we're still commanded to rest. Hopefully, that you do that. So that's the general idea of any sort of vacation, but especially of this sabbatical. It's an opportunity for me to withdraw from the church, from responsibilities, from decisions, from study, uh, at least uh, the, the pressures of study with teaching and, uh, and preaching, and just to be refreshed 
to, uh, to consider the, the condition of my own heart, to be reminded of the goodness and the grace of God, to be uh, reminded of the beauty of, uh, of my family and the beauty of uh, simplicity. That's why I'm getting off the grid and, and, and the beauty of, uh, of, of nature and so forth. And so it's, this is this call to self-examination. And I mention that because that's really what our passage is about this morning as well. This entire Sermon on the Mount is this opportunity for us to examine our hearts. The Sermon on the Mount is a spiritual EKG, in a sense, or an MRI, to to kind of look and see what's going on internally. Are there any leaks? Are there any blockages? Uh, Are there any things that are going on below the surface that you need to repent of, that you need to be refreshed in? So that's the entire Sermon on the Mount that we'll be in for the next uh, couple of months. But the the Beatitudes in particular are going to function as these divine occasions for us to stop and to kind of take kind of a, a bit of context and look into our hearts to observe what's happening and then to see whether or not we're actually cultivating Christ likeness or whether or not we're giving root and opportunity for the flesh. And so this Sermon on the Mount, in a sense, is going to function as a little bit of a sabbatical for our church to see how we're doing, where we're emulating Christ, or where we're being led by the flesh. It's an opportunity to not only rest, but also be repent, uh, to repent, to beg the Spirit to conform us to the image of the Son. So if you read this passage, not only today, but, but really over the next uh, few weeks and months, if in reading this passage you walk away and your thought is, man, I'm great. I'm absolutely crushing it. All of these things Jesus says, yes, I do them. That's not a good sign. That's that's a sign that something is is really amiss in your heart. You're just not aware of it, and that's the worst place to be in. If, though, when you read this and you think, man, I'm a mess, that's actually a really good place to be because it's those who are sick who know that they need uh, a doctor. So hopefully this passage hurts. All right, God disciplines those whom he loves, so let's pray and ask specifically that we would be sanctified, that we would be chastened this morning. I'll give you an opportunity just to pray that first for yourself. I'd really ask that you would pray for conviction, that your response coming out of our time this morning isn't, God, I'm great, God, I'm awesome, God, I'm crushing it, but rather, God, I'm so broken in need of your mercy. And then will you pray that for those around you as well? And then will you pray for me, not only for boldness and faithfulness in the text, but also just because I confess there are areas of my life where I see I'm I'm not meek. I'm not, I don't hunger and thirst for God's righteousness as I should. I'm not as merciful as I should be. I'm not as pure in heart as I should be. So, Father, we pray that you would use this text to convict us. I pray that you would protect us from the enemy's use of this text to condemn us that you would use it to lead us into repentance. That more than anything, we would see that though we are not as meek as we could be, though we don't hunger and thirst 
as strongly as we should, though we are not as merciful as we should be, though we are not as pure in heart as we should be, that Christ is all of these things for us. And so we rest in him. Pray that you'd help us to be reminded that you're a good father who gives good gifts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Look at Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Before we really dig in to what verse 5 means, let's back up. Let's consider the context. We'll go all the way back to chapter 1. Chapter 1 is about what? What, was, what does Matthew start with? The genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, and that's super important because it shows us that he's descended from Abraham, and it also shows us that he's descended from David. He is the heir to the Abrahamic and the Davidic promises. That's really important. We also saw that he is born of a virgin. He's not merely the son of David. He's actually the son of God. So according to his human nature, he is human, but he's also divine, Fully divine. Chapter 2, we get into the infancy of Jesus. We see the visit of the Magi. We see that uh, his family has to flee Herod's persecution. Then later they return after Herod's death. They return from Egypt and they settle in Nazareth. Then in chapter 3, we saw John the Baptist. He's this forerunner, making straight the way of the Lord, uh, emulating kind of the, the, the same sort of ideal as the prophet Elijah. And he baptized Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. The heavens tear open. The voice of God affirms his son. Then in chapter 4, we saw the temptation of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, <coughs> excuse me, and the calling of his disciples. Then last week, we began a section of Matthew that will take us uh, all the way from chapter 5 through chapter 7, and we call that the Sermon on the Mount. It's called that because it says that Jesus went up on a mountain. Now, mountains in Israel were more like hills or something like that, so think kind of uh, Austin Hill Country, uh, if you will. But he's up there on a, uh, on a hill, on a mountain, and he's giving this, uh, this, uh, this teaching. And that, that, that location, the, the mountain location, is really significant for a couple of reasons. Not only were mountains viewed as holy places, they were viewed as holy places because think about it, it's, it's the place where earth juts up into the heavens. And there's this, this, this strong contrast between earth and heaven. Those have been separated because of man's sin. And so a place where the earth juts up into the heavens was seen in many cultures as a holy place. Think about uh, Mount Olympus, right, where the gods dwelled in, uh, in uh, mythology. And so this mountain location is significant for that reason, but it's also significant because it should have some echoes, some allusions back to the Old Testament, the giving of the law. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is doing here. He is like a new and better Moses. He's giving the law, the law of his kingdom to his people. And in some sense, you could say it's a new law, but in another sense, it's really just an exposition, an explanation of the original heart of God's eternal moral law. That's what this, uh, this sermon is. It's a discussion of kingdom Ethics. These are the rules of the king. These are the constitution of the kingdom, if you will. You could also think of them as family traits. They're common characteristics of those who are in the family of God. And as we'll see over the next uh, few months, the, the sermon is going to be really far-reaching. 
There's probably not an area of your life that's not covered in this little sermon. It touches on anger and pride and lust and vengeance and anxiety and judgmentalism and prayer and fasting and almsgiving and on and on you could go. And it begins with these nine blessings that we call the Beatitudes. If you weren't here last week, Jared introed the Beatitudes. Each one has a Beatitude, that's a statement of blessing, and then it has a, a subsequent benefit, a promise of reward for those who express that Beatitude. So there's a Beatitude and there is a, a blessing or a reward attached to that. that. That Greek word translated in the ESV, if you're reading from the ESV, that you see there, blessed, that, uh, that Greek word is makarios. These are uh, sometimes called makarisms. The Beatitudes you might hear, if you're reading a, a very technical work, might be called, instead of the Beatitudes, it might be called the, uh, uh, the uh, makarism. Besides blessed, some translators also render the word happy. That's another translation for makarios. But another option would be flourishing. I invite you to think of any of those. Obviously, there's limitations whenever you're translating from one language into another. There could be connotations that come into your mind with any of those. But I really invite you to think of the word flourishing as we read these passages. This is an invitation to flourishing. That's what the king is doing. The king is saying, in my kingdom, there is flourishing. Not the way the prosperity gospel takes it. Not the way your flesh takes it. But the way that God intends it, there is a form of flourishing. There is a form of happiness. Again, not the way our culture defines it. There's joy here. There's blessing here. All right, That's what Christ is beckoning us to, to biblical joy and to hope and to reward and to prosperity. Not the cheap knockoff substitutions that the world offers, but the kind of happiness that only comes in the kingdom of God. You see, every single person who has ever lived in every single religion that has ever existed, in every single political party, in every single philosophical worldview, has a different view of what human uh, happiness and human flourishing looks like. Right? Some think that it's a world with no poverty. Others think that it's a world with no illiteracy. Others think it's a world with no capitalism. Others think it's a world with no guns. Others think it's a world with all guns, right? Amen. John Lennon says it's a world with no religion. Islam says it's a world submitted to Allah. But what does Christ say? We'll take his cue from this text. This is what it means to truly flourish. This is what it means to be happy, not in the human deluded sense, but in the full biblical sense. This is what it means to be blessed. Not only these Beatitudes, although that's the foundation, but the entire sermon. This entire sermon is really just the outworking of these nine Beatitudes. You know, if you're pure in heart, as we'll read today, then you won't lust, as we'll read later in the passage. If you're merciful, you won't crave revenge, as we'll read about later. If you're meek, you won't judge others sinfully, as we'll read about others. Each of these Beatitudes we'll see come up time and again in the rest of the sermon. They're kind of setting the stage for what's to come. And what's striking about these Beatitudes is the theme of the reversal of expectations. Many of these Beatitudes, in fact, perhaps all of these Beatitudes, 
seem to be the opposite of what we naturally sort of think. Mourning and being persecuted and being impoverished in spirit, these things seem antithetical to our understanding of what, if you were to ask us, how do you be happy? You wouldn't say, well, by mourning. You wouldn't say by being persecuted. So all of these things seem to be the the inversion. They seem to be antithetical to our idea of what flourishing and what happiness and what joy actually entails. So we see this inversion of virtue in this passage. An inversion that mirrors what Jesus will say elsewhere. He says it all the time, in fact. He who loses his life will what? Find it. The last shall be what? He who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted and so forth. We spent over a year, in fact, seeing this same theme back in 1 Corinthians. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. He chose the foolish to shame the wise. Again, there is this reversal of expectation. The kingdom stands in stark contrast to human wisdom. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to what? Death. So with that in mind, let's see the first of these four Beatitudes we'll look at this morning. We begin with, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you're an Old Testament scholar, you might note that there is an allusion there to Psalm 3711. Psalm 3711, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. What does that mean? What does it mean that the meek shall inherit the land, the meek shall inherit the earth? First, we need to define meekness. When we think of the word meek, we tend to think of meekness as someone who's quiet, someone who's docile, someone who's, for being honest, kind of a pushover, who never stands up for themselves, just kind of hides in a corner, never expresses his or her opinion for fear of upsetting others. And if that's your image, if that's the image that comes into your mind whenever you read this passage, you're going to miss the text. You're going to miss it dramatically. Meekness isn't a personality trait. Meekness isn't a weakness. Moses, if you're familiar with uh, his story, he's described as the most meek person in the world at that time. And was Moses a pushover? Of course not. You don't stand in the presence of Pharaoh and give him orders, the most powerful man in the world. You don't issue orders to him if you're passive and cowardly. And Christ is certainly no pushover, and yet he's described as meek, as we'll see shortly. So if meek doesn't mean docile and weak, what does it mean? Well, the word translated as meek is also translated elsewhere as humble and gentle and self-controlled. Those might seem to be uh, really different, but they all kind of overlap like a big Venn diagram. The idea is that because you're humble, you don't insist on your own way, and thus you're gentle, and you're free from malice, you're free from a vengeful spirit, you control your anger, you control your passions. Pastor theologian uh, Kevin DeYoung describes meekness in the following way. He says, meekness is a combination of patience, gentleness, and a complete submission to the will of God. Meekness is learning to be self-controlled instead of uh, needing to be in control. Meekness is opening your heart instead of clenching your fist. Meekness is the firm resolve that it is always better to suffer than to sin. 
And this attribute, if you read Greek literature at the time, this attribute was considered a vice by ancient Greeks because it was considered lowly. It was considered docile. It was considered servile. But again, what the world delights in, God despises, and what the world loathes, God loves. In fact, not only does God love meekness, he himself is the personification of meekness in the person of his son. Look at Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That word gentle there is the same word that's translated as meek. The same is true of the word translated as humble in Matthew 21.5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Christ is meek. Which means that when Christ bids us to be meek, he's inviting us to imitate him. That's what discipleship is. We talked about that uh, this morning. We talked about that, in fact, all semester in theological equipping. That's what discipleship is. It's learning to imitate Christ. Because that's where we find true happiness. That's where we find true blessing. That's where we find true flourishing in Christ. No one better exemplifies the ethics of the kingdom than the true king. That's the role of the king. The king is to know the law and do the law. If you read in ancient Israel, one of the the, the first tasks that uh, that a king was to do was to copy the law of God down and store that in their heart and to be a living expression of that. And all of them fell short, but Christ does not. He is the perfect personification of God's wisdom and of God's law. So let me ask you this. What do you do when you're sinned against? Do you find yourself typically responding with more sin? Do you fight sin with sin? Do you instantly reach for a whip or for a sword to fight against this perceived enemy? Are you patient? Are you long-suffering? Do you believe that it's better to suffer than to sin? That's what meekness is. And what's the reward? It says the meek shall inherit the earth. This is really interesting. Here in, uh, in Matthew 5, it says, The meek shall inherit the earth. If you're reading back in Psalms, uh, 30, Psalm 37, it said, The meek shall inherit the land. And the word can be translated kind of either way. But I think what's going on here, and I think this is why the translators of the ESV have interpreted it not as land, but as earth, is I think we see here this, this expansion of an idea from the Old Testament. The Old Testament talked quite a bit about a land inheritance. In fact, that was one of the three big promises of the Old Testament. Abraham was promised three really big things. He was promised offspring, he was promised blessing, and he was promised land. And the Exodus, during the Exodus or after the Exodus, the the promise of land was fulfilled. That's why it's called the promised land, right? In fact, the word translated as inherit, where it says the the meek shall inherit the land or the earth, the word inherit literally means the law of lots, referring to the fact that Israel cast lots to see which tribe would inherit which piece of the promised land. Yet notice that it isn't just the land of Israel that's in view here in verse 5. That's why the, the translators haven't said Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land, which is what Psalm 37 said, but instead they've said, inherit the earth. 
They do that because there's an expansion here, which is something we'll see throughout the Gospels. God makes certain promises in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is he doesn't fulfill them literally. That doesn't mean that he isn't faithful. That doesn't mean he doesn't fulfill them. It means he goes above and beyond what we might expect if we just read the surface meaning of the Old Testament text. He expands it. It would would be like me telling you, hey, if you'll do me this favor, I'll give you $100 tomorrow. And you help me with the task, and then I hand you $100, and then I hand you another $100, and then I hand you eight more. So I've handed you $1,000. That's what God does. In the Old Testament, he promises the land of Israel. But the New Covenant, he expands that promise, even as he expands his covenant people to include not only Israel, but Gentiles as well. He expands that promise. It's not only this little sliver of land in the Middle East, it's the entire earth. Or in the Old Testament, he promises long life. But in the New Covenant, that promises eternal life. That's what we see God doing here. He's not just fulfilling his promises. He isn't just faithful, although he is that. He is extravagant. He is prodigious in his grace, in his blessing, in his mercy. And this passage is also a good reminder. There's this eschatological dimension to the Sermon on the Mount and even to these Beatitudes. Last week we saw those who mourn will be comforted. Sometimes we see some of that comfort in this life. A lot of it is, uh, is stored up for us in the life to come, likewise with this promise. There is a sense in which we see kind of a foretaste of Christ's authority over the earth today, but the final inheritance waits until the end, when the new heavens will be united to a new earth and God's people will rule and reign with him in resurrected bodies. And if you're meek, then you're humble enough to trust the timing of his sovereignty and his wisdom. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The last shall be first. The meek shall inherit the earth. Let's keep going. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 6. Now, given the way that the beatitude is kind of laid out for us, you might have expected Jesus to say or Matthew to write, blessed are the righteous. But notice that's not what it says. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, this is about longing. This is about yearning. This is about wanting and desiring something. And even desiring it intensely. Imagine the way that you feel if you've skipped breakfast and lunch. If you've gone all day without drinking anything. There's this desperation there. If you've ever fasted for a few days, you know what it's like to hunger for food. I remember the first time I ever attempted an extended fast three days. By the end of the third day, I was heading out the door to meet some friends to break the fast. I was so, I so desperately wanted to taste something that I squirted some mustard into a glass of water and I drank it because it was available. It was the only thing I had. I was single till I was 35. So. <laughs> it's not my, not my finest moment. But you never know. I mean, how do they come up with things that are delicacies? You know, you just have to experiment. So mustard water could have been a big thing. I could have been a billionaire. But worse yet, I think the mustard was actually expired. So it was, so. What's interesting, Jesus uses that imagery of hunger and thirst 
to describe longing for something even more important than food or water. And that parallel between physical and spiritual hunger is a, is a really common biblical theme. For example, I just pulled out a couple of these. Psalm 107, 4 through 9, uh, 1 through 9. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. So there's a physical hunger there, but notice how it also then shifts to a spiritual hunger. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul, not just body, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Or Psalm 42, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Various pastors have described this longing as an expression of what is deemed holy discontentment. Holy discontentment. That's a, if you've never heard that phrase, I would commend it to you as being something that you'd keep in your vocabulary. In general, the Bible is going conti- to uh, uh, command contentment. Be content with your possessions. Be content with your wages. Be content with the gifts that God has given you. We see this all over the place in Scripture. But there's something we should never be contented with, and that is our present knowledge of, our present experience of, our present thirst for God. Why not? Because he's infinite, and you're not, which means there's always more to see. There's always more to find out. There's always more to worship. There's always more to appreciate. There's always more for you to taste and see. So my question for you is, do you hunger? Do you thirst? Or would you find that your pursuit of Christ is marked more by apathy more by complacency, more by holy contentment. You're fine. You're good. You've tasted enough. You're satiated. There's this phenomenon that's experienced by those who fast for long periods of time, much longer than my little three-day fast. That phenomenon is that they say that you eventually hit a point at which you no longer hunger that uh, for most people hits around day three or day four. Eventually your body just stops communicating that, uh, that feeling of hunger. And I wonder how many of us can relate to that spiritually. Maybe it's been so long since you've really feasted on Scripture, since you've really feasted on prayer, since you've really feasted on worship, You no longer even recognize that you're hungry, and yet you're starving. And if that's you, the first step is that you would acknowledge it. For you to say, there's something wrong here. I don't even long for God. I remember when I first got saved, I heard a pastor who was talking about wanting more of God and how prevalent this biblical idea of hunger and thirst for God is. And my third, first thought is, I don't even know what that means. I was a new believer. So I wrote him and I asked him, what if I don't really want more of God, but I want to want more of God? I don't really want God, but I, I want to want more of God. And he responded with, that's a good start. 
So is there at least a little spark in you? Is there at least a little yearning? Is there at least a little desire? Maybe this morning you'd say, I I don't really hunger and thirst for God, but I, I want to. It's a good place. Apply the bellows of God's Word and God's Spirit to that little spark. Pour some fuel on it that it would burn. And what is it in particular that Jesus says that we are to hunger and thirst for? He says righteousness. One thing we need to to, to make sure that we understand as we're reading this passage is that different authors use different words in different ways. So you can't just read a word in the Bible and then read it another place in the Bible and thinks the author means the exact same thing by that word. For instance, John says that the word became flesh. Paul says the flesh is evil and wicked. So does that mean that Jesus is evil? Of course not. They mean different things by the word flesh. Flesh for John just means human. Flesh for Paul means the residue of original sin. Or what about Paul and James? Paul explicitly says we're not justified by works. And James explicitly says we are justified by works. Are those contradictory? Not at all. They're simply using justification in different senses. And we do this all the time too, right? I say I love Casey and I love tacos. But I can assure you I don't mean them in the exact same way. And this linguistic point is, uh, is important to recognize because if you read Matthew's use of righteousness through a Pauline lens, which most of us probably are tempted to do, especially as Protestants, then you'll really misunderstand what Jesus and Matthew meant. When Paul speaks of righteousness, he means the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us by grace through faith. That's what Paul means when he speaks of righteousness. Dikaiosune, or dikaios in Greek, when Paul uses it, means the righteousness of Christ, that which he has purchased for us through uh, his life and through his death and resurrection, that is imputed to us, it's counted to us, is reckoned to us by grace through faith. When Matthew uses the exact same word, when he references righteousness, he's using that term in a different way. In particular, Matthew means not just something that's imputed to you, but rather he means right conduct. He means right living according to God's standard, according to his revealed will. Righteousness, as Matthew means, uh, uses it, means to live according to God's revealed moral law and wisdom. As Jesus says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus is saying that fullness of life and human flourishing according to the kingdom is to be found in longing to do God's will and to see God's will done. That should remind you of something we're going to read whenever we read the Lord's Prayer later. So in other words, flourishing means to care about things like poverty to care about things like abortion, to care about injustice, to care about racism, to care about oppression, and to long for God to act, and to do what you can to act as well, according to biblical principles. A lot of the ways that the world would define some of those terms is not the way the Bible would define them. Nevertheless, we are to pursue them in the biblical way. This is a reflection of the idea that those whose citizenship is in heaven long for the kingdom to come and for God's will to be done. If you've ever traveled overseas on some sort of mission trip, you might have had 
a similar experience that I have every single time I've gone overseas for work, which is that about day seven, I hit a wall. And that wall isn't necessarily fatigue. It's a culinary fatigue, right? I'll be tired of African goat or Cambodian fish or Romanian chicken or whatever it is, and I'll crave one thing. You want to guess? Tex-Mex. Tex-Mex. If you got that wrong, you don't know me at all, all right? You could have said sushi. I crave sushi, too, because I'm a quarter Japanese. But Tex-Mex, that's it. That's all I want. I'm overseas, and I'm like, if I could have one meal of Tex-Mex, this trip could go on indefinitely. Now, most of my missions experiences were before I had family, so I really could have stayed over there for months and months on end. But I want chips and salsa, and I want fajitas, and maybe even a frozen concoction with salt on the rim that I won't mention because some of you will sinfully judge me. So I have, I have made the mistake, I, I am confessing this to you, I've made the mistake of looking for Mexican restaurants overseas. <laughs> and let me just say, they leave me waiting, wanting, waiting, wanting, wanting. There's a reason that Tex-Mex rhymes and Cambodia-Mex doesn't, all right? <laughs> They've had Mexican food in Cambodia and Japan and uh, Israel, and none of them, none of them. We're good, you know? <laughs> but anyway, what's happening in that moment is that I, I'm longing for something that's familiar. I'm longing for home. Now, now what I miss is I miss my wife and I miss my kids and I miss the church or whatever it might be. Back then, as a single person, all I had was Tex-Mex. And, uh, <laughs> so, but I'm hungry for home. That's the idea there. And that's what Jesus is describing here. The kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. So you're longing for righteousness. You're hungry for righteousness. Those concepts are even related. Matthew 6, we'll see. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, those are overlapping terms, is our citizenship. This is our identity. This is our home. And so Jesus is saying we're homesick. We long for what's been inaugurated to be consummated, for the already to consume the not yet. So my question to you is, is that you? Do you find yourself longing for the kingdom? Are you grieved by the pain and suffering of the world? Or again, are you apathetic or are you complacent? Again, these things are going to spin out to each other. Can you honestly say that your heart resonates with the prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus? Or are you complacent? Are you apathetic? Does this world, does this present age, does it satisfy you or do you have a hunger for something that only Christ's rule and reign can satiate? Let's keep going. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That sounds really straightforward. If you show mercy, you'll receive mercy. You'll see something similar in chapter 6 where Jesus says, if you forgive, you'll be forgiven. The idea is you reap what you sow. Which is why in chapter 7, Jesus will warn us to take the log out of our own eyes before judging the twigs in others. So in order to understand this passage, we need to understand what is mercy. The theologians have uh, distinguished grace from mercy by saying that grace is receiving something you didn't deserve. It's unmerited favor. Or to make the point even stronger, it's actually demerited favor. 
It isn't just that you haven't earned God's favor. You've actively unearned it. I don't think unearned is actually a word. It's one thing if, you, if you're watching or reading Les Mis. It's one thing to have the priest give some silver to Jean Valjean. It's another thing entirely for him to do so after Valjean has what? Anybody remember? Stolen from him. So grace is receiving what you don't deserve and indeed have actually forfeited. You've actively resisted. And mercy is related to that in that mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. Namely, wrath and condemnation and judgment and curse. All of those things you deserve by your sin. I deserve by my sin. God's mercy to us is when we don't get what we do deserve. Grace was Valjean being given the silver. Mercy was him not going to jail. So those of us who are merciful are those who forgive, those who withhold vengeance, those who have been offended but overlook the offense. And again, this attribute is personified nowhere better than in Christ himself. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation there is an atoning sacrifice. So it should be no surprise that Jesus commends mercy throughout his ministry. Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. By that is not meaning that sacrifices are bad because in Jesus' time, sacrifices were still commanded. But he's saying that there's something that's more important and that is mercy. Or in Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weight of your matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Perhaps the greatest example of this is in the story that we know as the parable of the unforgiven servant, unforgiving servant. You're probably familiar with that story. There's a man, and this man owes an extravagant amount of money. He could never repay in a lifetime. Imagine owing someone hundreds of gallons of gasoline. That's kind of the idea. So as a result, he's going to be sold into slavery because he can never pay this debt back. But he pleads for mercy, and he's forgiven this prodigious debt. Then he goes out, and he finds someone who owes him a few bucks, and he puts him in some sort of an MMA chokehold or something. And as this guy is pleading for mercy, this guy is pleading for forgiveness, the first guy refuses. The moral of the story is clear. How could this guy who was forgiven such an extraordinary debt not show some compassion for a much lesser debt? This is how Jesus sums it up. And should you not It should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. The same idea is expressed here in the Beatitude. Those who have tasted forgiveness, those who have experienced mercy, those who have basked in receiving mercy should be quick and willing and eager and anxious to extend it to others. The same way that if you eat at some restaurant that's incredible, or you hear some song, or you see some movie that's amazing, you're, you're eager, you're desperate to share it with others. Likewise, should you be willing to extend mercy to others? Especially if you believe, again, the eschatological, eschatological nature of this promise, 
One day the kingdom will be fully consummated and every wrong will be righted. If I told you that I was going to give you a million dollars tomorrow if you gave me one dollar today, no one would probably do it because you know I don't have a million dollars. But imagine that I was independently wealthy, right? I was Bezos' son or something like that. I would imagine all of you would be like, I'll take a chance. I'll give up a dollar for a million dollars. Of course you would take that deal. And that's what extending mercy is like. Yes, you are extending forgiveness, but that forgiveness will be compounded to you. There is this eternal, infinite uh, interest on that in the kingdom to come. It's this foregoing of temporary payment for the sake of a more lasting reward. So here are a few diagnostic questions. Is this you? What's your normal response to insult or injury? Do you desire vengeance and wrath, or do you just want the other party to be punished? Are you so concerned with justice that you ignore mercy? Are you quick to forgive, or do you easily harbor bitterness and resentment? And when you do forgive, do you hold on to that thing you've forgiven so that you can bring it up? Or do you truly forgive and overlook the offense? Last one, verse 8. Sorry, we're going a little bit long. Blessed of the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? The word is katharos, from which we get the word cathartic. If something is cathartic, we say that it's cleansing. Like my sabbatical is hopefully cathartic in the sense that Ministry can tend to leave some residue on the heart and mind, so taking some time away allows for that to be washed away. So pure here means clean. It was a word that was used in, uh, in uh, uh, biblical and extra-biblical Greek literature of, uh, of water that didn't have any impurities or of metal without any alloys or uh, wheat which already had the shaft removed from it. So there's this solitary, pure substance to it. That's what it means to be pure in heart as well. It's to have a solitary focus. I think that's the idea there. A couple of weeks ago, I I mentioned uh, my first time fly fishing, which I did about a month ago with one of our other elders. And as I was fishing, I realized it's profoundly different from the type of fishing I grew up doing. As a kid, I did bass fishing uh, and perch fishing and a lot of uh, uh, catfish fishing, not noodling. I'm not from Oklahoma, uh, but fishing like with a, a, a just a cast rod or with a, a trot line. Anyone ever done a trot line? Anyone know what a trot line is? How much explanation I need to go into? Okay, trot line is a line. It's got a bunch of hooks on it, and you just put bait. Depending on what state or what area you're in, you may or may not legally be allowed to do it. But um, here you could, at least whenever I was a kid. And so you set the bait, put bait on all of these hooks, and then you just leave it. You go about your business for a few hours. You go swim or you go play or whatever it might be, and then you come back in a few hours and see if you have a fish. And catfish take such a huge bite, they'll often swallow the hook. You don't even have to, to be there to set the hook. It just happens naturally. Now, if you try that same sort of idea with fly fishing, you'll catch zero fish. You have to be locked in, right? You need a solitary focus if you want to see fish. In fact, that bobber begins to to, to plunge or the fly, you you see something hit it, you have to pull immediately or you're going to miss that uh, fish. You have to be so locked in in your focus. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. 
In other words, he's warning against hypocrisy. He's warning against two-facedness, which is a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount in particular and the Gospel of Matthew in general. The Greek word hypocrites, what, what English word do you think comes from that? Hypocrite. The Greek word hypocrites appears 17 times in the New Testament. 14 of them are in Matthew. Four of them are in the Sermon on the Mount. And that word literally means under a mask. Hupo under, like a hypodermic needle goes under your skin. Hupo under crites masks. It was a word for actors in the ancient world because actors wore masks. They pretended to be someone they weren't. So to be pure in heart means not only to be free of sin, but in particular to be free of hypocrisy. Now I've heard it said before, all Christians are hypocrites. Even some well-intentioned pastors have said that. And it's well-meaning, but it's actually really, really misleading. I don't think it's theologically true at all, at least not necessarily true at all. I think some Christians are hypocrites, but I don't think Christianity itself is hypocritical, uh, hypocritical at all. I think hypocrites are hypocrites. Hypocrites be hypocritin', right? <laughs> There's a major difference between Christianity as it's actually understood in the Bible and hypocrisy. The difference is a hypocrite and a Christian both sin. The difference is that the Christian admits it. The hypocrite wears a good little mask to deceive others, maybe even deceive himself, her own self. So let me ask you this. Is that you? Are you aware of your struggles and shortcomings? Do you readily admit them? Or do you hide behind your church attendance or your good deeds or your reputation in the community or whatever else? When you sin, are you quick to hide it or are you quick to confess it? Have you made peace with your sin? Are you desperate to mortify it? To be pure in heart is to love God and to hate sin. And that comes only if you already have a new heart. Jared mentioned this last week. I want to mention it again. It's important that you understand this sermon really isn't intended to be evangelistic. It isn't written primarily with unbelievers in mind, but rather believers. That's the context of the sermon. The assumption is that those who are hearing this sermon are already believers. They're already disciples. They've already been born again, already have new hearts, which long for God and hate their sin. So there's a sense in which these Beatitudes are calling us to do something and to be something. But in another sense, they're really focusing our attention on what God has already done. Become who you already are is the ethic of the kingdom. You have already been purified. You've already been given a pure heart. So walk in that. Live in that. Model that. So that's the beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. What's the corresponding benefit? They shall see God. And this is the ultimate promise, the ultimate blessing, the ultimate good. First John 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, listen to this, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Notice that connection between seeing and purity. I want to end with, uh, with this. Has anyone ever seen one of those YouTube videos or someone gets those fancy glasses that allow them to see colors for the first time. Raise your hand if you've ever seen one of those. Okay. 
Now, raise your hand if that makes you cry. All right. Your hand isn't up. That means you're a monster. <laughs> you're not merciful. You're not pure in heart. You're, you're, you're a mess, man. And now everyone around you knows it. What I love about those videos is there's this utter, unrestrained joy that you see someone experience in that moment. They can see. And, and almost everyone, they begin to weep. And the people who are around them, their fathers and mothers and children and siblings and friends and so forth, they begin to weep as well. That's what it means to see God. In some sense, we can taste it now when we read Scripture, when we pray, when we gather together as a church, when we cry out in song. There's a sense in which we see God, but our present experience is kind of like Moses it's kind of the fringes, the shadow of his glory. But one day, we shall see Christ in all of his glory. And all that's wrong will be right. All that is impure in us will be pure. All of our anger will be removed. All of our bitterness, all of our frustration, all of our fears. So come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I confess that it is hard to accept. And there is nothing that dwells within us that is within our flesh that wants to accept this. We don't want to be pure in heart. We don't want to be merciful. We don't want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We don't want to be meek. And yet, by grace, you have implanted in us new wants, a new heart, a new nature, a new will. And I confess, though, Lord, that our struggle exists between the Spirit and the flesh, and that struggle will exist until Christ returns and makes us fully new. And so I pray until then, that the Spirit would take more and more control of our lives and that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that we might walk in humility, in joy, in holy discontentment, in mercy, in purity, and all these good things. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.